2: beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: Hello nerds, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, here with a bit of a throwback episode in terms of less than heroic heroes. The past few weeks have been pretty wild for me, I tried to take a vacation from the podcast but I don't know what I was thinking because I had a book to deliver which took up all of my time and thus, no actual resting. But there's something so very satisfying about bringing the show back to its roots and diving into the story of Perseus with way, way more detail. I.e. just all of the detail I put into episodes these days. It's fun for me, fun for you all, and so here we are with a light and breezy episode about the guy who was pretty heroic up until the point that he killed our beloved Medusa, even though she wasn't remotely a threat but before we get into that like i just vaguely mentioned in my ramble about real life live i've written another book this one is just plain silly so as those of you who follow me on twitter or instagram know Next February, I have a book of Greek myth-themed cocktails coming out. It's called Nectar of the Gods, From Hera's Hurricane to the Appletini of Discord. That's right, it's just a book of incredibly nerdy, incredibly ridiculous, and incredibly fun cocktails based on Greek myth. There are 75 cocktails. Some are puns on some of your favorite existing drinks, but made mythical. Others are complete inventions and even more are just violent references to the dark world of Greek myth. It's going to be seriously fun, and it's illustrated by Sarah Richard, who illustrated my book of mythology, so you just know it's also going to be fucking gorgeous. You can pre-order Nectar of the Gods now, wherever you get your books. Yes, worldwide. Everywhere. I mean, to an extent, but worldwide. As far as I know, just ask your local shop. That applies to my book of mythology, too. I'm not able to answer all the questions I get about where it's available because I get them a lot. And the answer is simply everywhere. You just have to look. Books, 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 books. And with any luck, my actual novel one of these days. But that is enough about that. We're talking Perseus today. And not just Perseus, but Danae and Acrisius and all the wide realm of this Argive line of famous mythological folks. Perseus in much more detail than I told in the earliest, earliest days of this podcast. Perseus with much better sourcing and thus more detail, more variations, just more better Perseus. This is episode 135, Born of a Golden Shower, the somewhat heroic Origins of Perseus. I tell you not to concern yourselves with family trees and chronology in Greek mythology, there is one line of descendants in one region that is, for the most part at least, actually pretty easy to wrap your head around. So I will start by reminding you of a few characters and their children. First, Io. Io was the woman, the nymph, who was unlucky enough to catch the attention of Zeus. She was the poor woman who was transformed into a cow, just so Zeus could see her more easily behind Hera's back. Io was obviously found out because Hera isn't a dummy, and then spent the rest of her cow-embodied existence wandering, trying to escape from Hera's gadfly. Eventually she found herself in Egypt, where she became the great-great, maybe another great-grandmother of Danaeus. Danaeus, you may recall, was the father of the famous 50 Danaids, the daughters of Danaeus, who did have their own 50 names, but whose 50 names I will not try to read to you today. We've covered them and their murderous, but I would say a bit righteous, story. The Danaids eventually killed their 49 cousins, the sons of Egyptus, after they were forced to marry the men against their will. Depending upon the story, these 49 Danaids who killed their 49 cousins were punished in the underworld, but there was one of each who escaped the death and the punishment. Hypermnestra and Lincaeus fell in love at first sight, and so Hypermnestra didn't kill him. Or maybe she just didn't want to kill him and then they fell in love later, or maybe they never loved each other at all, but they did have children all the same. However their relationship went, Hyperbnestra and Lyncaeus had descendants of their own, one of whom was a woman named Danae, the daughter of Acrisius and Eurydice, and no, not that Eurydice. Danae is the Argive descendant of Io who we're concerned with today. Another woman who encountered Zeus, though luckier than Io in that her entire life and future wasn't affected. Kind of? It was. Danagae was born of Acrisius and Eurydice, and it wasn't long after his daughter's birth that Acrisius paid a visit to the oracle. Ugh, the oracle. It's been a while since we've encountered one of these moments, these instances where an oracular prophecy will no doubt come true, no matter what the person does to try to stop it from happening, no matter what horrible lengths they'll go to. Acrisius went to the oracle and he heard the prophecy. Like so many others, Acrisius learns that his grandson will grow up to kill him, that Danae will have a child, and that child will inevitably kill his grandfather, will kill Acrisius. And like so many others who hear prophecies like this, Acrisius tries to stop it from coming true and, in doing so, sets it all into motion. (laughs) In an attempt to prevent Danae from ever, ever even conceiving a child that would go on to kill him, Acrisius locks her up. The moment he returns to his kingdom in Argos, he has a special… bedroom? Built for Danae? Made of walls of bronze. A room that she will never escape, and that no one can enter. It's absolutely horrifying, fancy and shiny, but horrifying. Danae and her nurse are locked away in this bronze room in the depths of the palace. Later sources place Danae in a tower locked there by her father, rather than this bronze room beneath the palace itself. It's definitely a more modern-sounding idea, a visual, and one that could have gone on to inspire similar princess stories that thankfully don't have Zeus. But it seems that this tower version comes primarily, if not entirely, from later Roman sources like Horace and Ovid. In the Greek, it's all very fragmentary, this early part of the story with Danae and her mess of a father. But what we know is it's definitely this eerie, dark bronze room in the ground, in which she is locked away forever. And according to one of these sources, we may be able to imagine this room as not just a solid room of bronze walls built beneath the palace, but one with some kind of opening in the ceiling to let light and air in. Of course, it would need something like that. Though utterly horrifying, the Room of Bronze wasn't meant to kill Danae, just keep her safely locked away and unable to get pregnant. You know, definitely a reasonable solution, and not proof that Acrisius is one of the most dangerous and troubling fathers in all of Greek mythology. Lord knows nothing can keep Zeus away when he decides he wants to have sex with a woman. Not her opinion, her feelings, her words, her rejection... Not even a room of bronze with only a small opening in the ceiling meant just for light and air. No, not even that can stop Zeus when he learns of Danae, of her beauty, when he decides that he simply absolutely must have sex with her, no matter how much effort and trouble he'll have to go through to make it happen. Not that any of you could ever forget, but I'm just so excited to explain it again. (laughs) Zeus appears to Danny as a literal golden shower. A shower of gold that pours through this opening in the ceiling. An opening that could never fit a man or anything beyond this liquid gold that flows through. And... Well, it impregnates Danny. I don't think we need to go into the exact logistics there. You all have imaginations. Still, according to some, it, it actually isn't the gold that does the impregnating, but that Zeus uses his transformation into liquid gold simply to transport himself into this bronze prison, and once he's there he transforms back into himself. I mean, honestly though, which is worse? Hard to say. Now, I don't want to lessen how utterly horrifying this experience would be, but we don't know anything about how Danae felt about this, whether she welcomed it or whether it was deeply traumatic. So for lack of any information, we do just have to appreciate the most creative way to get around such an imprisonment. Zeus is nothing if not resourceful. After her encounter with Zeus, Danae becomes pregnant with Perseus. The most reasonable version of this story from this point onward is that Danae gives birth to Perseus while still locked away in her bronze prison, helped by her nurse, that Perseus grows up in there with his mother and the nurse, like room, but ancient. Eventually, though, when Perseus was two or three, maybe, Acrisius finds out what's happened in that bronze prison, how much he's missed, how close he's getting to that prophecy being fulfilled. Acrisius finds out and he murders Danny's nameless nurse, and he tries to force Danny to tell him who impregnated her, how it happened after all he'd gone through to prevent it. Danae, obviously, answers with the truth – it was Zeus. The truth is the only believable response anyway, how would anyone else get access to her? But all the same, Acrisius doesn't believe Danae. They never do. Acrisius, who has already proven himself to be a real and true horror show of a human, reacts to this news of his daughter and grandson with the only reasonable solution. He locks them both away in a chest and pushes it out to sea. I wish I could say why this is the solution. I imagine it's some way of not technically murdering his daughter and grandson? Like, he's intending to cause their deaths, but he doesn't directly kill them, so maybe he thinks he can avoid any kind of punishment, both cosmic or earthly. No matter the reasoning of Acrisius, it is one of the more unique means of dealing with the threat in the mythology. But then, so is Perseus's conception in the first place. This story is much, much more ancient than so many of the others, and this, these weird uniquenesses, seem to me to be evidence of that. These much more wild, much more unbelievable, much darker details. Just this ancient heritage. Fortunately, Danae and Perseus float along in this chest, and eventually the chest is found by a fisherman, a man named Dictus, on the island of Seraphos. Dictus comes across this floating chest, and, curious, he opens it. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Like you find this thing floating on the water, and you think, oh hey, maybe there's something useful in here, like food or treasure or, I don't know, literally anything other than what is actually inside. A mother and her young son, still very much alive. Dictus finds Danae and Perseus, and being a fine man in Greek myth, a rare thing, he takes them to his home on Seraphos and he treats them like his own family. Finally, for a little while at least, Danae and Perseus have a contented life, Not locked away in a bronze prison, not beholden to the world's biggest shit, Acrisius, not floating awkwardly on the sea. They just get to live on the island with this nice man, like normal people, for a while. There was a poet who lived between the 6th and 5th centuries BCE, Simonides, who wrote a poem for Danae, a lament for the woman floating along in the sea with her baby and no way to help herself out of her tragic situation. It's just a fragment, but it's beautiful and one of the few pieces we have that's so dedicated to Danae and her experiences at sea with her child. And as luck would have it, there's even a copyright-free translation. When, in the carven chest, The winds that blew and waves in wild unrest, Smote her with fear, she, not with cheeks unwet, Her arms of love round Perseus set, And said, O child, what grief is mine? But dost thou slumber, and thy baby breast is sunk in rest, Here, in the cheerless brass-bound bark, Tossed amid starless night and pitchy dark, Nor dost thou heed the scudding brine, Of waves that wash above thy curls so deep, Nor the thrill winds that sweep, lapped in thy purple robes embrace, fair little face. But if this dread were dreadful too to thee, then wouldst thou lend thy listening ear to me. Therefore I cry, Sleep, babe, and see be still, And slumber our unmeasured ill. O, may some change of fate, sire Zeus, from thee descend our woes to end. But if this prayer too overbold offend thy justice, yet be merciful to me.
2: Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com.
3: Danae and Perseus lived happily on Seraphos with Dictus for many years. Perseus grew into adulthood, or at least his late teens. He grew up to be old enough to cause trouble. That's what really matters. Because when he'd grown up, the king of Seraphos, Polydectes, caught sight of Danae and decided he wanted her. Gotta love men of Greek myth and their obsession with possessing women, typically those with no interest in them. Apollodorus makes it blunt as hell by saying Polydectes, quote, was unable to have sex with her, now that Perseus was a grown man. And so Polydectes begins to scheme as to how he can, well, possess Danae. Perseus is obviously in the way. He's grown up to be quite the specimen we can only imagine. He's been living with a fisherman all this time, so he's certainly been building muscle. And he's young and spry, and basically just an enormous threat to Polydectes if he wants to marry Danae. And he does. The answer couldn't possibly be that maybe Polydectes just find a different woman. No. Instead, he schemes. He requests wedding gifts from his subjects, or from a specific set of men, apparently. Possibly for the marriage of Hippodamia, a woman who was the daughter of a man named Enomaeus, who was marrying Pelops, of all people, and who I can't quite sort out her connection to Seraphos or Polydectes, but here we are. Polydectes is seeking wedding gifts for Hippodamia, and he brings together men from the island he asks them to provide horses as their wedding gifts. I have to say, I can only imagine this has to do with the fact that hippo means horse, and Pelops won Hippodamia's hand in a chariot race. Polydectes asks for horses from all of them, and apparently Perseus actually does bring Polydectes a horse. But then, according to Apollodorus at least, he adds that he, quote, Would not deny Polydectes even the Gorgo's head. Or, according to a much older source, Ferricides, again, Polydectes asks for a horse from Perseus who retorts, quote, the head of a Gorgon. Does this make any real sense? No. Does it provide the reasoning for why Perseus has to go in search of poor Medusa? Yes. However, and why ever, Perseus is now required to bring Polydectes the head of a Gorgon. That's the agreement they make. Or rather, it's maybe a joke response by Perseus that Polydectes holds him to? As much as this story is in part about Perseus saving his mother from a forced marriage-slash-assault from Polydectes, it is also definitely partly Perseus' fault that he gets himself into any of this. Why would he even bring up the word Gorgon? Because... After Perseus makes this dumb comment, Polydectes says that if Perseus doesn't bring him a Gorgon's head, then Polydectes will officially force Danae to marry him. He's a chill guy, that Polydectes. And with that, the hunt for the poor Gorgons begins. The Gorgons who live at the very ends of the earth, far away from humans, not hurting anyone, not causing any trouble. The hunt for the Gorgons and thus the impending death of Medusa comes about because Perseus made a stupid comment, maybe even an attempt at a joke, to a shitty king like Polydectes. None of this bullshit about Perseus ridding the land of Medusa's terror, nothing about her causing any trouble requiring death, nothing even about the head of a Gorgon being Medusa's head specifically. They just want a Gorgon. Just because of a stupid comment, an attempt by a king to do away with a woman's son so we can marry her without any trouble. The story of perseus and danae is so old that there are so many variations but none exist in their entirety none answer all the questions raised by the individual details they just piece together varied possibilities of the how and the why perseus ends up in search of the gorgon's head was it this entertaining exchange between polydectes and perseus in which he just says something stupid and has to follow through Or was it more of a scheme on the part of Polydectes, because he certainly couldn't have predicted that Perseus would suggest he retrieve a Gorgon's head? Some bits and pieces suggest that Polydectes had in fact already forced Danae to marry him, that she was enslaved by him, that he was assaulting her regularly. Lots of horrifying bits and pieces for why Polydectes was quite so awful, why Perseus needed to get to the Gorgons, why he needed to bring back one of their heads. When a story is so old and no versions exist where it's told from start to finish, there's a lot left to the imagination. Regardless of the details and the when they come in, we can gather that once Perseus set out in search of the Gorgons, Polydectes considered him already dead, and so this is when he forced Danae to marry him if he hadn't already. Not only was Perseus going in search of these Gorgons who were dangerous when threatened, but he had to travel to the edge of the world to reach them. This type of quest would kill almost anyone. Because it really is a quest. It isn't as easy as Perseus flitting off to the edge of the world where Medusa lives with her sisters, the other Gorgons. There's a lot to be done before he can get there. Perseus, meanwhile, is feeling a whole lot of, holy fuck, what have I done? Fucking dummy with his snarky Gorgon comment. Look what you've gotten yourself into, Perseus. He wanders the island of Seraphos, wondering exactly that. Like, how in the fuck is he going to even get to the edge of the world where the Gorgons live, let alone actually kill one? He wanders the island all the way to the very farthest edge of Seraphos, where his prayers are answered. At least in part. According to one of the oldest sources we have on this, it isn't Athena, who first appears to Perseus with help in his newfound and ridiculous quest. But Hermes... Hermes appears to Perseus and asks him what's wrong. You look a little glum, Perseus, almost like you just single-handedly fucked your life up pretty good. What's up? That's what I like to imagine Hermes said. Perseus tells Hermes what's up, what he now has to do because of a careless remark. Fortunately for Perseus, he's meant to be a Greek hero, and he's also the son of Zeus both of which are reasons we can assume contribute to the fact that he receives help from not one, but two, Olympians. The first bit of help comes from Hermes, either in the form of him carrying Perseus to the first required quest location, or with the gift of Hermes' own winged sandals. It isn't entirely clear in the text sources, but Perseus is so often shown wearing Hermes' fluttery gear, so I think we can gather that one of Hermes' ways of helping Perseus was to just give him stuff. He's also given a sword, and according to later sources, but also the easiest explanation for how he ultimately kills Medusa, he's given a reflective shield from Athena. And so, Perseus is on his way. He heads to the first location, itself far off in the west of the world, near its edge. He goes in search of sisters, some say two, and others say three. Also daughters of the sea monster gods Phorkys and Quito. Just like the Gorgons... But these ladies are a bit less threatening than the Gorgon sisters. They're the Grey Eye. Two or three women who shared one eye and one tooth between them, tossing it between each other for whoever needs it in the moment, leaving the others blind and unable to speak, while the third has those vital items. The Grey Eye were born old. They had grey hair and were sea monster goddesses who personified the sea foam itself. Though we hear of two or three sisters, we actually have four good names to attach to them. Dano, which means terrible, Enyo, warlike, Persis, destroyer, and Pamphredo, she who guides the way. The Grey Eye sisters are a real treat for next week. Ah, as always, thank you all so much for listening. Do you know how many lost plays of the tragedians covered this story? So many. There's a whole play by Aeschylus about the Gorgons and Medusa's death, and we don't have any of it. It's a fucking travesty. Anyway, enough of my devastation about what has been lost, I could go on forever. I do enjoy revisiting some of these more famous stories, the ones everyone knows at least bits and pieces of, and giving them to you in as much detail as possible. Like, I realize I've told it before, so I try not to do this too often, but in this case it seems like the perfect little palate cleanser after a very busy summer for me as I try to prepare a whole mess of episodes for you while I'm away in, hopefully, Greece. There just is so much that I missed in those early episodes and especially when it comes to Perseus, this like deeply ancient myth and obviously the one that connects to Medusa but this is about Perseus, I'm not going to focus on her too much. But there is just so much there that I am able to find now and tell you all about that I personally think it is so worth it to go back to some of these more famous ones and do them right. Anyway, it's really fun for me so I can only hope it is for you too. One interesting thing about the story is, again, just how old it is. Bits and pieces of it come from some of the oldest sources we have, and that Perseus is an ancestor of people like even Heracles is an accepted fact of the mythology. Perseus, and so his mother Danae too, are some of the most ancient characters we have. They are the origins of so much of the mythology generally, and things have changed over the sources, but especially the first half of this episode, the birth of Perseus and how he and Danae reach Seraphos and Dictus is pretty widely accepted and incredible. It's just so old and so important in terms of the rest of the all of Greek mythology. And another thing I learned is that one major variation exists on the life of Danny. Sometimes it isn't an oracular prophecy that causes Acrisius to lock his daughter away. But instead, there's a version where his brother, Proetus, her uncle, rapes her, which causes a fight between the brothers. And somehow that punishment for Danny ancient victim-blaming in the absolute worst way. So that version theorizes that maybe that it's suggesting that Proetus is Perseus's father, but also could be just the cause for her imprisonment, which then would still lead to Zeus's golden shower. It's such a dark and horrible variation that I didn't think it necessary to place it within the narrative earlier, but I wanted to mention it. It's another example of the way women's traumas are used within these stories. They're plot devices and little more. And speaking of trauma, next week... Perseus and his least heroic action. He's a hero, sure, and he does a lot of really good things. He's no Theseus, but there's a certain woman who did not deserve her fate at his hands. And we'll get to that bit next time. And after that, Iphigenia at fucking Aulis. Euripides forever. (laughs) Thank you all. You're the best. I am Liv and I love this shit. A lot. (laughs)
2: Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com.